Well, good morning and thanks for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute and today we're going to be talking about transparency practices for Congress. Uh, I'd like to note just a couple brief things before we get started with the program. First of all, uh, we are streaming live this event on the internet. It is available at cato.org. Uh, so if you're watching uh, at your, your desk, uh, please feel free to get on Twitter and you can ask questions actually by using the uh, hashtag RateCongress marker, it's pound sign, rate Congress, and uh, I'll be checking my phone periodically uh, to see if there are any questions coming in from the audience in addition to, of course, our, our live audience here. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is that kind of the centerpiece of today's presentation is a new paper that just came out from Cato, Publication Practices for Transparent Government. Uh, that is available on our website if you're at home again. Uh, you can get that at cato.org, and if you're here today, you can uh, just pick up a, a copy at the registration desk outside if you didn't get one on your way in. Uh, the author of today's paper is, is going to be our first speaker. We, uh, we do still have Chairman Issa coming. I know that you notice there's a, an empty chair to my left here. Uh, Congressman Issa, Chairman Issa is on his way, but uh, he was delayed by other matters as is often the case with members of Congress, but we'll be uh, uh, moving to him as, as soon as he does arrive. Uh, in the interim, you're stuck with Jim Harper of the Cato Institute. Uh, he is the Director of Information Policy Studies at Cato. Uh, I know you're thinking, what the heck is a Director of Information Policy Studies? I'm thinking the same thing because I'm not sure. Uh, we're, we're pretty well convinced that he made up the, the, the title so he could work on essentially anything that he wants to. And he does actually work on a wide array of issues ranging from uh, technology and telecommunications to privacy, uh, homeland security and counterterrorism, and of course today's subject of transparency. Uh, in, in that capacity, he actually runs uh, another website in addition to, of course, blogging at Cato.org, our blog, uh, Cato at Liberty. Uh, he uh, runs WashingtonWatch.com, which is a great transparency website I encourage you to check out. With that, I'll turn things over to Jim. Thank you, Brandon. Thanks to all of you for being here. Uh, thanks to the audience that's watching online. We're glad to have you with us. And I'll encourage you, actually, to use the Pound Rate Congress uh, hashtag, Brandon should pick up any good question and, and pass it along. Um, Brandon has an array of jokes that he uses to introduce me. He didn't go after the beard today, though he certainly could have. Um, it's, it's true that as, as a director of information policy studies, a title I came up with on my own, uh, I can really go into just about anything I want. I used to talk about it as my ace in the hole, uh, having this role, because my bosses at Cato really don't understand what I do, so they can't ask any hard questions. It's, it's sort of a perfect job in that sense. The one mistake I made was to speak about that publicly, and now I, I actually really have to produce. Um, and hopefully I am producing today with, with the, the paper that came out, Publication Practices for Transparent Government, and with the affiliated materials, an example of which you see right over here in a, in a sort of report card for Congress. Uh, transparency is a goal uh, that's shared by, by many, many uh, people. It's, it's a pan-ideological goal. It's a, a, a bipartisan goal. Everybody wants transparency and nobody doesn't want transparency. But in at least two years since President Obama took office, we haven't seen the strides forward in transparency that I think people really wanted and expected. I've been watching, I've been working with the transparency community, including John and others at the, the Sunlight Foundation, John Wonderlich here will speak next. And I think, I think we've all been working every way we can to try to, to, to figure out how to get transparency. And the, the, the solution 
uh, and to suggest that it will solve everything would be, would be a mischaracterization. The solution, I think, is to give transparency more determinacy. That is, we all want transparency, but we don't know, don't know exactly what that is. And, and so I've been working most of this year uh, with colleagues who I'll mention toward the tail end of my I talk um, on giving some determinacy to transparency. What do we really want? There are good examples of efforts to create transparency that, that reflect that indeterminacy, I think. And these aren't, to, these aren't to criticize these efforts. They're all good efforts, but they haven't really hit, hit the mark like we want them to. One example is the data.gov project. You may be familiar with under the Open Government Directive and the Open, open Government Memorandum. Uh, federal agencies were asked or tasked with publishing three high-value data feeds, and they were all collected on data.gov. The definition of high value was very, very broad. And so the data feeds range widely across the spectrum, if you will, of high value, uh, in my opinion, to low value, in my opinion. And high value, some, some feeds are high value in other people's opinion, and low value in others. Uh, I think that the focus should be on deliberation, management, and results, really the heart, the core of what, of what government does. And I ranked, actually, the feeds that were available with, at the deadline based on deliberation, management, results. There were some A's. The Executive Office of the Presidency, for example, I was, was pleased to see got, got an A uh, based on my rating system. There were plenty of C's and D's, though. Plenty of agencies put out data feeds about stuff that was interesting to them or interesting to a narrow niche in society. Um, you may be familiar with the We the People uh, WhiteHouse.gov project that rolled out yesterday. Um, that's good. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's exciting and interesting that they're going to be taking input from the public that's going to help direct uh, some of the White House's and the, and the executive branch's efforts. It's notable that uh, uh, a petition on legalization of marijuana got more than three times the necessary signatures in the first day. Uh, so it will change public discussion. We'll see how the White House deals with it. We'll see whether that uh, starts a serious discussion about marijuana law and the drug war. Um, with all that said, though, that's a little bit gimmicky. It doesn't give us that core insight that core ability to oversee what goes on in government. So we need something better than that. Here in the Congress, um, for years, I think the, the slogan, at least, has been to read the bill. Read the bill. And so uh, the leadership here in the House has established a 72-hour rule, which is fairly well followed. Uh, and and the, the, the pending bills are posted on the Rules Committee's website for people to review if they haven't been able to access them other places. Um, that's good but it hasn't created the upwelling of transparency that I think we all expect and that we all believe can, can happen. So again, none of these are bad, but they haven't gotten us all the way there. Um, about two years ago, at the beginning of um, the Obama administration, I wanted to drive home the pan-ideological agreement on some of the stuff that he had campaigned on, the transparency promises he campaigned on, and signal to my community of libertarians and conservatives and folks like that that what he was talking about on the campaign trail is stuff that we like too. So I put on an event called Just Give Us the Data and had a, a, a wide variety of speakers from, from all ideologies uh, to signal at the very least that, that we want more transparency, we want better information from the government. Just Give Us the Data uh, is, is an interesting phrase because in retrospect it's too simplistic. I think it's a little bit immature actually to say just give us the data because there's a lot more to it and that's what my study since then uh, has revealed to me. I think that, that there are specific publication practices you can talk about that create data transparency. And so we work on that, and that's, that's the stuff that's highlighted in the new paper out, Publication Practices for Transparent Government. Those of you who are here in person, by the way, 
Uh, we have thumb drives with all the documents that I'll talk about that are available out at the desk as you, as you go out. You can, you can um, gather yourself a thumb drive. We thought it'd be a little bit foolish when we're talking about data transparency uh, to put out papers on paper and ask you to, to, to read them that way. Uh, these are, you can share around. There's a, a, a variety of formats that are available to you, so hopefully we'll be a little bit um, better on publication practices ourselves than we might otherwise have been. The publication practices that we go into in the paper are essentially four. Uh, and, and, and this is this paper, think of it as a translation from highly technical jargon that I could barely understand when we started uh, into English that you would understand. Uh, I kind of understand what I'm talking about at the tail end of the process of writing this paper. Uh, the first publication practice is authority. That's simply putting data uh, in a place where people know to look for it and in a place where people will trust that source. So it's a kind of consistency in where the, where the data comes from. Availability is what it sounds like. It's the simple practice of keeping the information available, uh, of making sure it's complete. This is, this is a practice that you wouldn't think about in the real world because uh, a, thing, a physical thing that you put somewhere is going to be there, but it's very easy to violate availability in the data area where if you plan poorly or if you hit the wrong button, the data can go away. And it becomes less trustworthy. People don't know what to rely on. So availability is important. As we move into the real heart of these publication practices, we come to machine discoverability. That's also uh, is what it sounds like. It's the idea of computers being able to find the data and to navigate within and among the data to figure things out as the computer's controller has programmed it to do. Um, things like using HTML links. The, the World Wide Web is, is a, was a huge breakthrough in machine discoverability because it simply created a language that computers could use to navigate from one place to another. So it was absolutely brilliant. And that's why the internet took off uh, after the creation of, of HTML and the World Wide Web is because of machine discoverability. So we need this in the area of, of uh, congressional data as well. And finally, machine readability, that's what really brings it home, what, what really puts the rubber to the road. Um, that's when the data is structured so that its meaning can be drawn out by computers. Uh, it's a process of, of systematizing identifiers among things. And I use the example uh, in the paper of the fact that there are two Mike Rogerses in the US Congress. So if you refer to Mike Rogers using text, there's going to be a lot of confusion. And I bet the staff in Mike Rogers, in both Mike Rogers' offices, get lots of calls for the other Mike Rogers and are continually referring people back to the correct Mike Rogers, the one they wanted to talk to in the first place. Well, that same problem will happen if you use text to identify a member of Congress. So the, the US Congress has a neat thing called the BioGuide at bioguide.congress.gov, if I recall correctly. And BioGuide does a simple but important thing. It creates a unique identifier for each member of Congress. Creating a unique identifier for each member of Congress means that we can program a machine to go and recognize that distinct member of Congress and tie all the things that he or she does, voting, introduction of bills, speeches, all kinds of things to that correct identifier. And that's very, very helpful. It's simple but profound, and we need identifiers like that, not only with members of Congress, but with bills, with votes, with motions, with decisions, which all, with all the constituents of the legislative process. And so um, machine readability really gives you that richness that will enable the public to do government oversight in, in probably hundreds of new ways if it's done right. Um, there is a huge community of people who work with data today, and they do a pretty good job. With, with the data that is available from, um, from the Congress. There'll be much better 
uh, ability to, to do these kinds of things in the future when all the data is published in these, in these using these practices that I've discussed. So this is the, this is the paper that I've talked about. Um, for, those, for those, by the way, that are watching online, uh, you should be able to find the paper on the Cato at Liberty blog, C-A-T-O hyphen A-T hyphen Liberty dot org, uh, in a post that I put up this morning, as well as the other documents that I'll refer to as I continue. So with these publication practices in mind, uh, what do we need? And that's the next step in what, in what we worked on. Uh, and, and what we've done is created a data model. Now, a data model, this is, a, this is pretty arcane stuff. And this is where I probably did most of my learning and thinking. I am in a think tank, after all, so I am obligated to learn something as I, as I write. A data, data model is a way of describing the things in the world in ways that computers can access. And so we took all the things that happen in formal legislative process and made of them entities, and we call them entities. A member of Congress, that's, a, that's an entity type. A bill is an entity type. A vote is an entity type. All these kinds of things. And then you describe their properties. These are the logical relationships that they have to other things. A vote is cast by one and only one member. A bill is co-sponsored by many, many members. They're, these are all properties of votes, for example, and bills, and so on and so forth. Well, having, having created this uh, model of what legislation and the legislative process looks like in data, we can now compare whether that data is published consistently with the publication practices that we think will lead to transparency. And so with that, we've produced a grading document that's also going to be on the thumb drives you have available to you. You might have gotten a, a, a handout of it as well. And it's also online at the blog post that I put up this morning. We just went through and analyzed how well each of the important pieces of the legislative process are published as data. And it's summarized here on this, on this report card that, that we put together, also available online and in the handouts. And it's, it's worth taking a look at the report card. Uh, I think the summary of it is needs improvement. You see some examples of, of good work. Um, frankly, votes, bills, and members of Congress are pretty well represented in data. Uh, these are kind of easy, or maybe they look easy because they have been reduced to data and are, and are pretty well published now. There are some ways to improve the, the publication of these things so that they get, they get to be easy aids, really, with a, with a few improvements on how they're represented in data. There are plenty of incompletes. And frankly, this is stuff that we came across in our study of legislative processes. So well, you need to have this piece of the puzzle in order to complete the picture. So things like motions and decisions. We have good vote information. But we know who, who voted yes and who voted no. But what was the vote about? Is that represented in a way that people can access? Generally not. And so we need to understand what the motion is that's being voted on. We need to understand what the decision is. And so these are things where we, where we um, created gave incompletes, because obviously, if if we're kind of coming up with the idea of publishing this as data in the first instance, it uh, wouldn't be fair to give an F. Uh, talk to us in a year, though. We might be a little more strident in our, in our uh, approach to this um, because we do want, I think we do want, everybody wants forward <coughs> improvement on transparency. Um, in the middle, between the incompletes and the A's and B's, are the C's and D's, where we have um, mostly committee information. Committees are kind of the black hole for transparency. And I suspect that there will be have, to be, have to be a lot of change in congressional process in order to draw what happens in committees out to the kind of availability that we want for the public. Um, there's lots of work to do. And I think it's important to emphasize that, uh, that we're going to have to learn more as people on the, on the Hill learn more about how things should be published. 
Um, why don't I take two or three minutes to finish up, and then yeah. we'll turn it over to you. Let's I figured I'd get the next slot, so whenever you're done. All right, all right, very good, thank you. Um, so there is much there is much to be done on, on all of this, and and I think humility is 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 an appropriate approach to this. I've you know seen people tweet already. Well, Congress just isn't transparent. So you know, sort of back of the hand, government is stupid stuff. And I think it's it's too early for that. Um, uh, there may be a point at which we have to be a little more critical, but this stuff really is hard. Uh, we're asking for things that nobody's asked for before, um, and and like I said, our work is not going to be the last word. We're all going to continue to learn uh, about the process. I'll note another document that's available on the handout, which is a, a STRAT-ML representation of the goals of having, having transparency. Uh, STRAT-ML is a, is a machine-readable language for expressing um, project goals and strategic, uh, rather strategic goals and outcomes. And this is required by the Government Performance and Results Act for federal agencies to use in their, in their GIPRA compliance. So if you may be familiar with the Results Act, it's an important part of overseeing budgeting functions and spending functions. And so we've, we've actually represented this project of improving transparency in STRAT-ML format. Might be interesting for you to, to open up and look at. Um, and we'll be using STRAT-ML, I suspect, when we turn to the next part of this project. We're starting with Congress and we'll be moving to, next I think we'll do a, a budgeting, appropriations, and spending, which is probably simpler, though also a huge, huge task to try to get represented as good data. And we'll continue on through other elements of governmental processes until we really have described all the pieces of the puzzle in terms of data, what we want, and we'll continue to press for better publication. Um, I've spoken about humility in general and the difficulty of this. I have to speak of, of my personal humility because I've learned so much, and I want to just cite the work of a couple people. Josh Tauberer is here, who runs the site GovTrack.us, and also PopFox. He's done a lot of work to, to try to create transparency, to try to give people access to Congress. Francis Avila next to him, who works with Dancing Mammoth, he's been a consultant to me on this project, and my technical right-hand man who's explaining to me a lot about how these computer things work. Uh, it's, it's fascinating stuff. Anne Washington uh, of George Mason University is a trusted advisor. We compare notes quite a bit. Um, she's back there in the second to last row. Derek Willis of the New York Times, who does their, their data work, has also been extremely helpful. He's up uh, in New York, I think. And John Wonderlake, who we'll turn to after Chairman Issa, and his colleagues at the Sunlight Foundation have all done great work to help educate me and hopefully, uh, through me, educate you about uh, the transparency and how to get things done. So with that, we'll turn it over to Chairman Issa, who we appreciate for his stalwart work on this and for access to the room. I actually thought I'd be cute and took off my jacket and rolled up my sleeves and then said, well, Maybe I'll roll the sleeves back down and come in and talk. Uh, the report card uh, is telling. I would, I would note that uh, since the Senate doesn't do anything, transparency in their meetings doesn't really gain you much, does it? Uh, so uh, I might object to the D. Let me open by being a contrarian for a moment. Because I don't think there's anybody or let me rephrase, I don't think there's any committee that has been steadily under both Chairman Towns and myself trying to rip open and give you real access, real meaningful access to government. So I, I'm very proud of what our committee is doing. Obviously very uh, pleased that we are online, real time, 100%. If we're meeting, we're broadcasting. Uh, and we're going to try and get that done before the end of the year. We believe that except for 
a little bit of staff bureaucracy, and write that down, staff bureaucracy, be, uh, we would have 100% of all the historic, available historic video online before the end of the year, plus real-time broadcasting of every single committee meeting, unless precluded specifically by the chairman or committee rules. Uh, which brings me to the point of government has a need to define what you know, what you don't know, and what you don't yet know. And that's the biggest challenge that I think we have in getting transparency in government. 235 years ago, people met in secrecy because they'd be hung if their meeting place was discovered. Uh, they'd be shot if they were seen going back and forth to that meeting place. There are times in which secrecy is appropriate. I am not going to come to you today and say you have any right whatsoever to know what goes on inside the Select Intelligence Committee in real time. Uh, although the New York Times were reported to you in near real time with some regularity. The fact is we need secrets. But we need to define when we need secrets. We need to find them narrowly. You need to know. And more importantly, the vast majority of secrets, like LBJ's disgusting language while dictating from the toilet as president, uh, probably has been protected far longer than it needs to be, particularly considering the hubris about, uh, about Nixon's tapes having to be you know, available to everybody immediately. So that brings us to the, the Data Act. The Data Act is not going to give you everything you want. And that's why I say I want to be both positive and contrarian. It's going to give you everything that you have gained a legitimate, justifiable right to know. And that's where I think the fight for all of us is going to be important. It's not about with how you rate people A to, A to F. Some people, like the Select Intelligence Committee, I would hope they always have an F minus. I hope that you are never satisfied that you're getting everything about what people believe should be the secrets of government because people die if the other side knows. On the other hand, I find it amazing that the Rules Committee, the least democratic part of the House of Representatives, the committee that under Republicans and Democrats put the fix in so that you actually don't get a legitimate debate, so that you never get to have offered things that otherwise should be, they call it protecting, which means they can protect something they're not supposed to protect, you're not supposed to do it. Uh, and we do it with some regularity. We now in the House do a couple of things I'm proud of. Uh, I'm not proud that we don't have earmarks. I'm proud that, I'm sad that we didn't reform it so that the wishes of members of Congress in their own districts or, and or senators would have been transparent because there shouldn't be any secret. If they're proud enough to think that a healthcare center should have some, uh, some attention by the federal government or that a road uh, should get a priority over 30 other roads in their district, tell, tell Barack I'm busy. Uh, and that could be a Barack. You never know who it's going to be. Uh, the, uh, so we, we, we ended it, we didn't mend it. Which brings me to the last point, which is although we, we, I, could, I could talk endlessly, and I think it would take a little Q&A if that's okay, uh, I could talk endlessly about the shortcomings in the House. And in Q&A, you'll bring up the shortcomings in the House. But the administration is still the big banana. It's still where, for example, Political appointees have, in this administration, stopped FOIA from coming out. They've just literally gotten to them, redacted them, decided they didn't work, or in the case of many, many of the FOIA, 
spun them in, in other press before they ever gave them to the four-year requester. So even when you have transparency, it doesn't mean that you're getting what the, the law intended. I've deliberately been a contrarian, not because I don't agree that vast amounts more should be available, but because I think that the important thing is, if we want to defend anything as none of the public's business, that's our right as your representatives. But it's also our obligation to openly tell you what we're not going to tell you, why you're not going to tell you, and then tell you, and this is the most important part, which I think is part of transparency, is who is checking on the checkers, who check on the checkers, who check on the checkers, so that at least you can have a confidence that there is a process that is the closest alternative available when, in fact, the public cannot know. And I, I'll close by saying yesterday, we had a hearing on the SEC where the ultimate body of government that demands that the private sector be open and transparent, that public companies give you enormous information in a certain format with absolute clarity so there can be no mistake about the value of a company and its future, they managed to have somebody back, you know, back deal for on, on, on behalf of himself in the Bernie Madoff case so that he and his family would potentially have gotten considerably more money net. In other words, a clawback in this case that the money they'd already gotten wouldn't have to be given back. And he was just the general counsel. So I would say that along with everything else I already knew we needed, I'm beginning to think that an awful lot of what we consider ethics in government reporting has to be made public. If somebody says, I don't have a conflict, and they put out an ethics uh, uh, questionnaire that has historically been closed, now I have to question, well, wait a second. How do we have anyone else say, but you left this out. You left out half a million dollars worth of your mom's estate that you're now self-dealing uh, on, but nobody knows because even though you sold, told the uh, SEC chairwoman, she didn't think it was much of a deal because she says you told her in a format she didn't understand. Even, to, even though you told the ethics uh, uh, lawyer, he's a subordinate of yours and somehow he managed to make a favorable decision in your case that he wouldn't have made and didn't make in other cases that were actually less, less onerous. So uh, I'm not happy with the report card. We can do better. And hopefully I've given you reasons to say, what are you talking about? I said I thought you were our friend on transparency. Questions? Actually, I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to know. Um, with the Data Act, I think you've, you've taken a lead, obviously, on where we're headed next, which is which is the budgeting, appropriations, and spending processes, getting that data into structures that we can use. Well, I'd like you to know what universities are doing with the money that they get in a very opaque way, and then tell us that it's too expensive to tell you where it actually went versus where they justified it. Uh, and if any of you have missed that, your universities are the worst enemies of the Data Act. Your universities, almost to a university, have lobbied against the Data Act because it's too onerous. Too onerous when they receive tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. Think about that and ask yourself if academia isn't the biggest single source of the problem, at least as to the portion they get. Because if they don't have to report, 
the ripple effect uh, of, in the true private sector goes way up. But you were asking. I appreciate that point, and that, that actually dovetails with the question I was going to ask you, which is, a, and there are probably a variety of different um, actors who are going to be resistant to transparency because it cuts against their, their self-interest. Well, and the lawyers on my team said, you know, this is really good stuff, but we actually can't plan how to investigate openly. <laughs> We're happy to give it to you when we get done, but we can't do it openly. So, I mean, there's a lot of those. I just want them to be clearly defined. Relevant point, obviously, too, that, that um, there are plenty of things that are going to happen in congressional offices, just like happened in the executive office of presidents, that, that doesn't have to be available to everybody when you're planning an investigation. Yeah, sure, after the fact, sure, the presidential records or congressional records, but uh, um, after the fact, uh, those things might want to be published, but there isn't, I don't think that, that an appropriate transparency to demand is to be in on every conversation that happens between you and your advisors, you and your investigators, and so on and so forth. But among the, the um, challenges of trying to get particularly spending and, and appropriations data into good formats is a, is a group that has very long regarded itself as um, uh, almost religious figures. Those are the cardinals that, that are in the appropriations committees. You're familiar with these people. You know, in, you know in the minority, they call them sparrows. They only seem like religious figures when they're chairs. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, what do you think? What do you think will be the response when we, the transparency community, which I include you in for these purposes, says to them, uh, "We need to see appropriations bills in formats that reflect what agencies there are and what programs there are." Because right now, appropriations bills don't come out in those formats. Process changes, I think, in the appropriations committees and lots of other places are going to be a little bit of a challenge. I wonder what you think about the, the push and pull there, or the politics even, of, of moving for transparency. You know, when I was in college, we used to play a game, you know, in foreign affairs, actually. But it was, you know, it's worse than that. And we were usually talking about the old Soviet Union and trying to explain, you know, what happened behind the Iron Curtain. And somebody would come up with an example and say, no, no, it's worse than that. And they'd have another one. Uh, you know, so you started with Siberian gulags and all this, and then you went right on to uh, uh, mainstream, you know, killings and torture and so on. I feel that way sometimes with the appropriators. <laughs> How many staff are on the appropriation staff? Don't answer it. It's not known. How many of you know that every cardinal used to have two secret personal staff paid for by appropriations? not funded through the normal process that every other member gets their, their funding. How many of you know we had a big reform? We got down to, they only get one now. One extra staff simply by being, and I'm sorry, I said cardinals, I apologize. Every appropriate, I, I got that wrong. It's, it's part of being an appropriate. You get an extra staff. You used to get two. And Lord knows how many of the cardinals got. How many know what the budget of, card, of the appropriators are? Well, they do their own budget. I know I got a freeze under Mrs. Pelosi. I know I got a 5% rollback under the first year of Boehner, and I know I'm getting a 6.5% rollback under the second year of Boehner, both for my committee and uh, my personal office. I mean, rollback in, in real dollars, no, no fudgy, fuzzy math. Uh, and it's available to all of you. It's going to be transparent. You'll see the numbers. You can do the comparison. If it doesn't come out to 6.5%, you'll come see me. We have no such idea with the appropriators. When Denny Hastert, who I'm actually uh, meeting with today on a, so, a more social basis, tried to take on a small reform, Jerry Lewis, one of my friends and colleagues, brought down the rule just to show who was in charge. So the answer to your question is a question. How do you eat an elephant? In small bites, if possible. Uh, 
and there's a lot of bites. Dealing with appropriations is huge. The fact is, we ended earmarks, but you can't actually end earmarks for the earmarkers. Secret earmarks by appropriators are still going on every day. I can't prove it, you can't prove it, but we know it happens. On top of that, under the Democrats, bless their hearts, for their four years, they found something that's very clever, which is particularly under Obama, but even under President Bush, or under, under, I'll say Bush and Obama, so I don't say President one time and not the other, they simply call the agencies that they, that they, they fund and talk about what's important, and it gets into the uh, administration budget. So the answer is we're going to have to do it step by step. One of the things that we want to get is we want to get all communications between the administration and Congress within certain classes to be immediately disposable. No secret emails between the administration. No meetings in which notes are taken by the administration relating to the budget process or appropriations without it. Ultimately, once we get real accountability on the administration's earmarks, they call them competitive grants, you might have noticed them. Uh, once we get real oversight on that, then one of the things we discover is that although they can still have competitive grants, we don't want another cylinder. We don't want uh, Henry Waxman able to weigh in, and then we don't really know whether Waxman got him the extra money or somebody else in the administration or POTUS got it for 50 years. So the answer is I am not optimistic that we can take on appropriators directly. I am optimistic that accountability of Congress in which we don't let the appropriators get a pass and, a pro and, and uh, really going after transparency of the administration, including as they have communications with any member of Congress, will get us half the loaf, not just a couple slices. But I'll take other suggestions because I can't be antagonistic to my own colleagues and at the same time Republicans do not deserve to stay in the majority if we can't do a lot more on this than we did during you know, the last days of, of, of Denny Hastert when we tried to fix a problem that, was, that had led to the Duke Cunningham scandal and so on. We'll certainly, we'll certainly have things like this report card hanging out there uh, to help to make the case to the public that, that Congress and on both sides, all parties should, should be doing better yeah. on this stuff. But, it's, it, but you know, it's the footnotes that matter, it's the comments. You know, if there are improvements, that they get credit for it. If there are half improvements, or if there are promises made that are not kept. So, you know, you can have a C for a long time, because as far as I'm concerned, if we get better, it's still a, it's still a moving target. You, you don't get an A and keep an A if you don't continue to do better. Yeah, yeah. looks like John Wunderlich has a question. Hi, Th thanks very much for being here, Chairman. Is this a prepared question, or did you type it while I was <laughs> this, is, this is my talk, but, but it, you, brought, you brought up so many things. There's one thing I have to, I have to ask, though. Um, on earmarks, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Uh, we actually have a running wiki page of every time there's a news story about members managing to get earmarks through correspondence or requests. Um, there's a Bush-era executive order from 2008 that says that executive branch employees have to either, they have to ignore requests for funding if they're verbal, and if they're written, they have to be posted online immediately. And I don't think anyone in the administration has ever enforced it, and I've written to them about it repeatedly, and they've just kind of not responded. So that's a good one because, as you know, executive orders do not expire; they have to be rewritten by the next administration, right. or they're still enforced. Mm -hmm. uh, send, send my office a copy of that sure. executive order if you have it, and we'll we'll follow up. It is one of the challenges. Back in anyone remember '09? Uh, when did I send the letter on the electric company with Bill Bray? It was just in the news saying, what about these guys getting 
some of that pot of money, but 09. You know, trust me, it gets out when the administration wants to say, how could you complain about $500 million lost in this panel company? You asked for, from a different fund, this electric company to be considered, particularly after six months of they're not getting the answer at all. Uh, and it, by the way, it's not that I believe that all these electric companies are going to do all that well. It's just I figure if General Motors was taking basically 100% of the pie and all the companies that want to innovate around them were all getting screwed, it probably was a good idea to send the letter. But your point is good. I'm happy to have my letters posted in real time. Before I gave up on earmarks altogether, we posted them as we sent them in, and we required that the agency that asked for the money had to actually have a vote, public vote, so that it was public, that they asked me before we ever did it, uh, which goes to that whole point. I don't think earmarks should have been ended, but since we didn't reform them, didn't seem to be able to reform the, the process, we ended it. But ultimately, the budget process is just one great big earmarking technique that is now less, less apparent. And by the way, not open to everybody. <laughs> Other questions? Or just criticisms? Yes, sir. Uh, Section 10 of the Different Modernization Act requires agencies to publish their strategic and their performance plans and reports in machine-readable format. As you were just coming in, Jim mentioned strategy markup language. StratML is such a format in its American national standards, so it would be good if agencies used it. My question is, uh, will Congress have the ability to deal with all of this data, and, and how do you plan to really effectively use performance data from agencies? It seems in, in the past, the political consideration has been more important than, than the, the actual results. Yeah, the past really sucks. Because <laughs> uh, past performance is awful hard to, uh, you know, sort of work yourself around. But here's, here's why the Data Act tries to, to force a standard and why we're getting pushback. It's not that people object to using XBRL. They object to the idea that their little fiefdoms are going to be reduced, that you're going to have interoperability between multiple reporting sources so that you can cross-check things that you could never cross-check before. One of the reasons that the IGs are universally thrilled about this is they want to have that ability uh, which, by the way, we don't have in the Data Act. One of the challenges, is one of the things we're going to follow up with is the Inspector General's Reform Act that makes the assumption that some part of the Inspector General's office will have to have, if you will, all access. And they will be the ombudsman of interoperability. Big change. I thought President Obama was going to be with us. Uh, Vice President Biden is with us on this concept. I'm not sure we'll get it done in what might be a one term. If there's a second term of this president, you know, I'm going to have to hope that Joe Biden and I can really get it through because we can make all the data standard, but if you can't cross-check between these, uh, then each one is stoked by looking at it and you still have that problem. We hope that we, we take each of these. You know, once, we, once you open it up and say it's all going not to one place, but to one place in which you can look at all places, then everything you're, you're saying uh, can be done. One thing I want to, and I, I know somebody's, thank you, Mary, somebody's got that, you've got to be in the next place. One thing that I would hope that the transparency community really looks at is, you mentioned it, Jim, Presidential Records Act. There's no Congressional Records Act. We maintain records, we have, but we don't have a set of rules. When a member of Congress leaves, 
what they have been doing until recently is running a photocopy machine for endless hours so they then could give all that government time and government paper to a library uh, for a tax write-off. Honest, honest engine, common practice. My predecessor, an appropriator and a cardinal, did just that. He burned up two, two photocopy machines at the end. Uh, now, things have changed. They're now digitally grabbing it all and doing it. But in many cases, actually even most cases, it evaporates, and they're the only keeper of that. The American people have a right to all of, if you will, the data, the legacy, the work product of members of Congress. They have a right. Now, whether or not Congress has a right to decide 50 years, 100 years, never, no problem at all. But the idea that it evaporates is inappropriate. Now, that, I'm going to stop. That doesn't mean that, that all the casework done on behalf of people under this, you know, that, that sort of stuff has a privacy issue that I don't think we're going to get past. But the basic work that people are repeatedly giving to universities and, and, you know, taking with them, if you will, and yet not making it ever available to the public except on their terms is really inappropriate. Yes, there's a certain personal ownership, but we're all, 100% of it's been produced with the government paying for it. You had a question. Committees have one set of rules. Individual members can routinely delete. The, uh, the House doesn't have, as far as I know, an app in any way that they're actually capturing everything. Some of our members have their own servers that are not connected. Some are connected. Some are backed up. We do not, and, and, and if anyone can prove I'm wrong, then I'm the most naive member of Congress. We do not have an equivalent of the Presidential Records Act for members' activities and conduct. We do not have a defined, and because I've been through orientation initially, and then I've been involved in it for new freshmen for years, we do not have a set of rules on what members must maintain and, and, and make available. And uh, as a result, if you want to know what Henry Hyde, one of the great minds to work here, did, you'll find an awful lot of material but you will not know what you did. You don't know because there was no specific keeping. And in a paper world, maybe that was to be expected. We're no longer in a paper world. Uh, correspondence, you know, every every nuance of communications of the White House for the last several Congresses is in either Lotus Notes or Outlook, and it will all be available to you in the future. And it is all available to me if I have investigations and other legitimate reasons to know, or not all of it, but almost all of it. Well, Mr. This, Chairman, no. the staff does have a lot of power, and if we're ever going to have you back for a follow-up, I think we should probably let Mary take over and, and move you to uh, the next But I'm happy to follow up with event. you, because that's a leap that I bring up today, because it is part of the answer to your question, which is, how do we change how we do things? Well, we've got to know that 100% of work product is open and owned, or is at least owned by the public, then the question of when it's open can be debated. Uh, otherwise, forensic uh, evaluation of any of the things you think were happening versus what was happening is impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks so much to the Chairman Issa. Really interesting and entertaining comments, as always. Um, we're, I'm told that we're having some technical problems uh, with the live streaming of this event. I apologize for that. Of course, if the, we are having significant technical difficulties, they cannot hear my apology anyway. But uh, 
We're going to go ahead and move on to our third speaker, after which we'll take questions for both uh, Jim and John Wunderlich, who is the policy director for the Sunlight Foundation. I think everyone in this room, anyone that, that has spent any time dealing with the transparency issue is well familiar with Sunlight and the fantastic work that they've done in, uh, in trumpeting the, the, the need for additional uh, transparency and accountability for the federal government. Uh, you've probably seen uh, John in particular. He's made uh, numerous appearances on television programs on Fox News, C-SPAN, as well as NPR. Uh, he's testified here on Capitol Hill. His comments and writings have been featured in major papers, including the New York Times and Washington Post. Really one of the foremost advocates in the country for open government. With that, I'll turn things over to John. Thanks very much. No pressure to follow up Jim and Chairman Issa after that. It was fantastic to hear his thoughts so frankly on a Friday morning. It was very nice job getting him here, and thank you for organizing this event. Um, so I want to start, um, first of all, by saying I, I agree wholeheartedly with everything Jim said. So maybe I can just say ditto and go back and sit down. Uh, but what Jim's doing, I think, is really important. And I've, I've been doing this since the early 2006. And I, one thing I'd like to highlight that Jim went into a little bit is this idea that transparency work needs more rigor. Um, I think that's absolutely right. We often come up with visions for how things should change or complain about specific problems where, where there's a shortfall. But one thing that's missing is the ability to compare uh, what's changing or what's available or how it's made available against a benchmark. Now, no benchmark is going to be perfect, and so we end up with lots of lists of, of uh, principles or ideas for different ways that things should be made available. And that's really, really important work to be able to define the way things should be made available. Um, as far as rigor, I think Jim's also absolutely right to point out the Open Government Directive, which was very important and transformative and marked a change between President Bush and President Obama and has caused a lot of meaningful changes to happen. But the most significant way that the Open Government Directive that, that Obama put out has failed is that it's a presidential declaration. It's technically an OMB memo, but that's basically the same thing. And this OMB memo is... Uh, please do this as much as you can. It's basically the form that I view the mandate from the OMB memo. So some agencies take that seriously and it validates officials that want to go further. Um, some agencies don't take it seriously at all and basically make plans to assemble a meeting of people to come up with a strategy for how to discuss changing in the future, the way that they go about making plans to change things. And they, you know, we can just do that forever. Um, so the thing that's missing there is rigor, and, and, and so with the, the high-priority data issue, that was really just kind of a made-up term, a way of saying we want you to disclose things that are meaningful and to try to make it into something rigorous, but it ended up ultimately not being rigorous. So that's why um, one of the things Sunlight did uh, in the, in the well, after the Open Government Directive was ask that agencies start listing all the information. To say here's what's knowable about our work is a very powerful thing to do. So when, when I first got involved in this work in 2006 and, and started with Josh Tauber, the Open House Project, the idea there was to give uh, bipartisan advice on how the House of Representatives could be more open and share information better online. And at that point, I was a blogger living in Pennsylvania, working as a telemarketer during the day and working for Sunlight all night. And one of the first things that I did, in addition to reading everything I could about Congress, was go through every website and print, 
one point I printed out every website I could that explained what Congress was doing and laid them out around myself on the floor and tried to get a sense for what the legislative support agencies were, what the administrative offices were within the Congress, what the committees were and how they all related to each other who, and who was in charge of each one. That was at least a start, but there's still no comprehensive list of everything that's knowable about the Congress. And one of the things the president did in the, the follow-up to the Open Government Directive that made us very happy was a, a memo on regulatory compliance data. And this memo said that every agency has to make a plan, again, planning your plan, but every, every agency has to make a plan for how to share the regulatory compliance data better. And the, most agencies either didn't do it or did it very poorly, but the Department of Transportation did something I think very valuable. They went through all of their sub-agencies and said, here are our activities, and here's the information we collect, here are the things we make available, here's our plans for how to improve it, if we could improve the way it's made available, and here are all the things that we don't make available. Here's if you can FOIA it or not, and if, and if we'll say no to your FOIA request, here's how we'll say no. Um, and that, to me, is the most extraordinarily straightforward and authentic way of engaging with the question of what is knowable about my work that I think is very valuable. Uh, that sort of effort has faltered, obviously, in the executive branch, and it basically hasn't existed in the legislative branch. And there's probably a good reason for that. There's never going to be a president of the Congress, and we would never want there to be one. And one of the results of that is that there's no one in charge of the way information is collected or gathered in Congress. And that's why it's incredibly important to have forums like these or leaders like Chairman Issa who are willing to stick their neck out and talk like he did. I was kind of, I don't know if anybody else was amazed the way he was talking about appropriators, but I think that was a rather remarkable set of things that he was describing that I think is, is very powerful. So that's why this kind of leadership is important. And that's why the work that Jim's doing is so important, is to try to define specifically what should change about all these different areas in the way Congress shares information. So this effort to give some rigor to how committees share information or how bills are published online is fantastic, and I hope it, it adds an additional, some more momentum to the movement that we've seen over the last several years. Um, so since the Open House Project report was published, and I started getting involved in this, and clearly you know, this was going on for hundreds of years before I got involved, but, but that, that, this is the part that I know about, we've seen committees significantly change the way that they share information, and the Oversight Committee is one of the best examples of that. Um, I would share, I think, that there's kind of an underreported story about how well the House Rules Committee has done in sharing information. Under the Democrats, under Chairman Slaughter, the, the, for the first time, um, amendments were posted online. But the, what the Republicans have done under Chairman Dreyer, I mean, there are some criticisms about whether they have emergency rules and, and breaking the 72-hour pledge, but the website is fantastic. And the House Rules Committee is doing a really useful, fantastic job of putting up legislation in a way that is comprehensible. And to the point where they put a timestamp that says this was posted at 10.57 p.m. So, and also posting XML for, for the bills so that it's reusable for, for people that want to display the bills. So that's fantastic. Um, quickly, other things that have happened. There was a Committee on House Administration meeting this April, where some of these issues were discussed, and I'd just like to mention, I think it's great when there's committee-level attention to these issues. Um, the, the idea behind sharing this legislative information, our real interest at Sunlight, is to empower outside reuse and analysis of this kind of information. So Josh, who's sitting there, is the, really the pioneer of this practice starting, I think, 2004, built GovTrack.us, which is the real backbone behind all reuse of legislative information at the federal level in the US. 
and empowers efforts like Open Congress, PopVox, uh, Washington Watch. I don't know if you scrape separately or rely on GovTrack, but you scrape separately, okay. <laughs> but, but the idea is that that practice should be easy and that no one should have to spend their nights and weekends putting together a robotic scraping, scraping system that copies every bill from the Library of Congress every day. Um, and we're getting there, it's certainly improving, but we're still looking for bulk data from, from Thomas or, or from the clerk or from whoever's gonna publish it, but it shouldn't be necessary to scrape legislative information. Uh, to that end, uh, Representative Foster at the end of last Congress introduced a bill that would require bulk data to be available from the Library of Congress, which we thought was fantastic. Didn't go anywhere, but that was the first time that it had that level of explicit attention. Uh, previous year's legislative appropriations bills had a requirement for reporting on the feasibility of bulk access to Thomas data. It never happened, maybe because the deadline for this report on feasibility of bulk data was tied to whenever LIS 2.0 comes out, which I think LIS 2.0 will never come out because they won't call it that because that would mean they would have to do that report. So <laughs> basically that's never gonna happen. Uh, but we'd still like to, see, like to see this happen. It's kind of crazy that it hasn't happened yet, uh, but I, I will say it has been fantastic working with the, the majority uh, on this issue and Boehner, specifically Speaker Boehner came out with a letter, I believe it was in April, called, basically calling for the Library of Congress to do that. So hopefully that's still in process. I don't have any updates on, on it, but I would love to, to see that move along and finally make it unnecessary for Josh and everyone else to, at great labor, put together these systems that copy every bill from the Library of Congress website every day. I think it's as difficult as it sounds, at least to me, I think. Um, Okay, so that's, that's my general description. Um, I guess I'll, I'll close with the thought that I think what we are looking for is for congressional technology to not just be whatever it is now. I mean, it, we're trying to improve it, but we want it to be uh, reactive to what people are able to do on the outside. So we want Congress to be as interested in and as competent with their information and the way they share information as the people are on the outside that are reusing and analyzing that information. And I think right now there's still a pretty big gap between what people need and are able to do and what people in Congress are, are producing. We're making up that gap, but I still think there's a huge gap. Ultimately, we'd like congressional technology and the way this information is shared to be ahead of what people are looking for and to actually be strategic and affirmative and based on a vision of what's possible. But what we're looking for now is for it to be uh, ample to what people actually need. Thank you.